Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Ask me to come and preach. Um, sometimes I have a passage that I've been working on. Um, other times I've been thinking bigger. Um, and so today what you get to hear from me uh, about something I've been thinking about. I did a three-week class at, uh, at, at my home church on what the church can learn from the Old Testament, what we the church can learn from Old Testament Israel. So what I've done for you this morning is taken probably about three and a half hours worth of stuff and try to condense them down into this sermon. So if it seems like I'm trying to do a lot in a short time, I am. And so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that up front. That's what we're going to do. Really, this is a question that I'm always asking of myself because I, you can see in the bulletin, I'm mainly teaching the Old Testament to college students. And they're Christians and they want to learn from it. But one of the questions is, you know, how do we learn from the Old Testament? How can we as Christians today in the 21st century we really get anything from this strange Old Testament? And what I want to kind of encourage us this morning is that we can learn from it, and we are supposed to be learning from the Old Testament, as as Paul himself just wrote in what we were reading. And so what I want to just walk through and kind of outline for us this morning is how we can be reading the Old Testament and how we can be learning from it. Um, Paul, for instance, I'm going to read through our passage heard from 1 Corinthians 10, but twice in that passage he says, these things have been written as examples to us. And I'll even say this, um, right at the beginning of our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud. Even that is a little peculiar, because he is writing to Gentile Christians and saying, our fathers passed through, um, were under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's talking, obviously, about the Old Testament Israelites. Were they the fathers of the Corinthian Gentile Christians? Well, not in any literal sense, but Paul here is saying, these are our spiritual fathers. These are the people who preceded us in this walk, and these are the ones that we can learn from. So those are the types of things I want us to be thinking about this morning. And so, first what I'm going to do is give a very brief context of our 1 Corinthians 10 passage to see what Paul's doing. And then we're going to be going in a number of directions. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, is addressing a really burning issue for the Corinthians. And that is, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? For us in the 21st century, most of us in our culture, this is not something that we're faced with in a day-to-day occurrence. Should we be eating meat sacrificed to idols? But I want to point out that for them, this was clearly a day-to-day choice that they had to take part in. And likely in the, in the city of Corinth, there would have been an easy solution, right? Well, I'll go to the supermarket that sells the meat that wasn't sacrificed to the idols, right? That's what I could do. Well, likely in 1 Corinthians, first century Corinth, all the meat in the, in the marketplace would have come through one of those idols' temples. 
and would have been offered as a sacrifice there. So that's not our main subject, but I just want us to see how Paul is addressing a very significant pertinent question for them. So what did Paul say to that? He said, you know what? You should realize that meat passing through an idol's temple doesn't actually do anything to meat. It's not a big deal. You can go ahead and eat that and you haven't sinned. Except, unless, except if you think it's sin yourself, then it's sin. And unless you might cause your brother to stumble, then it could be a problem. And so what he's saying is, um, be careful with how you're exercising your liberty there, and be careful with how you're affecting others. By the time he gets to chapter 10, though, he says, but I do want to be careful. It's not a big deal. This is kind of my summary of the chapters. It's not a big deal if you go to the meat market, buy the meat, doesn't matter if it's passed through the idol's temple, you take it home and you eat it. It's not a big deal. On the other hand, we need to be careful of actually being involved in idolatry. So, as chapter 10 expands on after this, if you get invited over to someone's house, and then you find out, wait a minute, they're having this meal in celebration of their idol, then you need to abstain from eating that meat that was sacrificed to the idol there, because of what someone would think, that a Christian could worship an idol and Jesus. Point B, what Paul is doing in the passage that we just had read, and we're going to look at here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, is he's saying, what you Corinthians are facing is similar to the problems that they faced back in the Old Testament. And what I'm suggesting is, what we need to see is, the things that we face as Christians are similar to what they faced in the first century, are similar to the things that they, they, they faced back in the Old Testament times. But what do we have to do? We have to do a little work in order to understand the similarities and the differences. So that's where I'm going. So what are the similarities? What are the differences? So let me start with the differences. So if we go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament centers around this people of Israel. And they are a nation, and they live thousands of years ago, halfway around the world. So they are a nation. We, the church, clearly are not a nation. Right? We have representatives from many nations in our church, even here. And the church is a body around the world. You're not a nation. You're a spiritual body who has been called out. But that brings up a similarity. In a similar way, Israel was called out from among the nations to be God's special possession. He talks about in the, in the Old Testament reading we just did to be his special possession, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And we should recognize that we as people have been called out to be holy. So that's just an introduction or a hint. Some of the things that we would consider as far as similarities and differences. How are we similar? How are we different? We are not, for instance, under the Old Testament law. The law that was given to, to, to Israel through Moses we are not by, bound by that Old Testament law. And yet, we are still called to holy living. It may look a little different for us, but it's a similar following. So here is what I want to do, and by way of suggestion. How are we going to be able to approach the Old Testament to learn from it? I'm suggesting three, kind of three things to keep in mind. As far as strong similarities between Old Testament Israel and us as Christians today. First thing, we have the same God. 
and we have the same gracious God, and I'm intentionally saying that for the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, a God of grace. And I'll spend a few minutes trying to explain that. The second thing is that we have a similar calling to Israel, and I already mentioned that. They are called out as a holy people. We are called out as a holy people. Again, it may look different, but there are some similarities there. And the third thing I want to bring out is that we have a similar mission. And that's something that we probably often overlook. What was Israel's mission in the Old Testament? And I want to point us a few places for us to see that. What is God's intention for Old Testament Israel? And I think we can see some similarities for our own mission, His intention for us. And so my hope is, by seeing some of these strong similarities between us and the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament people, when we, you know, that you would be able to, as you're looking at the Old Testament, as you're reading it, maybe these things would help you relate to it. Maybe help you see, oh, I can learn from that still. I can relate to it. It's the same God, a similar people, and a similar God. So that's where we're going. And again, I want to hit a few highlights on each of those so let me again read through the opening verses of our passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All right, so we, were, we remember the, the cloud of, of God's presence watching over the Israelites as they came out of Egypt in the Exodus and went through the Red Sea. Paul calls it this in verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. So what is Paul doing? Uh, he's using this term baptism, but I don't think anyone fully understands what, why Paul is doing that or what, what he's using it there. I, there are many explanations. But here's what I see whenever I read that. This is what reminds me of uh, just as we are baptized, you know, uh, I think it's been a couple of years now, my children came and were baptized right here. They're proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ, right? Baptism, kind of symbolizing our death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, representing a new birth in Him. That is what baptism means to us as Christians. I would say something similar is happening back in the Exodus event. That it is that time, the Exodus, where God brings them out of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea, that He is doing a new creation, even a new birth for Israel there, where they are in that moment set apart and born as a nation. You'll allow me to draw the analogy out a little more than Paul even does. That signals the, the beginning of their very special relationship as a nation to the God of the and what, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look back, there's some similarities. They were baptized. They had spiritual food and spiritual drink. Well, we have spiritual food and spiritual drink that's laid out in front of us that we will be joining together in communion in the Lord's Supper today, right? Um, so see that Paul here is trying to draw out the similarities. That as God sustained them, sustains us through Christ. And even identifying the rock from which the water came in the wilderness as Christ himself. Alright, so I'm just 
however we understand all these details, we're pointed to the similarities that we have a similar relationship to God as these Israelites did, because God, what did he do? We read in Exodus 19 where they had already got to Mount Sinai. That was our Old Testament If you remember the rest of that story, leading up to that point, God had miraculously delivered them out of slavery, defeating Pharaoh, defeating the Egyptian army. Up to that point in Exodus 19, Israel, let's put it this way, Israel hadn't had, had to do too much to get out of Egypt. Basically, they had to walk out of Egypt. God had done everything for them. Exodus 19, in the passage we read earlier, is in a way a turning point in the story of Israel and God. Because God said, he says these things, I bore you as on eagles' wings. God carried Israel out of Egypt. He did everything for them. He showed, if I'm allowed, his grace in their lives, fulfilling his promises or beginning to fill fulfillment that he made back to the patriarchs. He was showing himself to be a gracious God who was working on their behalf. He is the one who brought them out to form this special relationship with them. God had done everything for them in the Exodus story. Can we relate to that? Because now in Exodus 19, God says, now if you agree and enter into this covenant, you will be my holy people. See our own relationship with God. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't make ourselves worthy of God. He did it all by sending Jesus, right? Jesus in his death and his resurrection paying the price for our sins, being gracious towards us so that we might enter into relationship with him and be his people. So I, I really want us to see that because that's a, that's a place that sometimes we get maybe tripped up, but we look at the God of the Old Testament and we don't recognize him. We say, that looks like a different God. That doesn't look like Jesus back there. That doesn't look like the Jesus that I know from church and Sunday school and night of life. But I want to make sure we see, yes, God is a God who will judge and is wrathful in the Old Testament. I don't ignore that. But in the Old Testament, he is a God of grace as well. Just as in the New Testament, even Jesus is a God who will judge and is just and will bring his punishment and wrath upon those who do not accept him. So we can't say, well, that Old Testament God, I don't recognize him. He is our God. He was a gracious God then and is a gracious God then. So that similar relationship that we have from, with the same God should be our starting point. Right. And as I said, we're going to hit the highlights on each of these. Our next one, let's, let's continue reading what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 10 in order to see something, where he goes from this. So in verse 6, picking it up there, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you recognize that, that's the story of the golden calf when they made that. So just notice each of these references are to significant Old Testament stories about the things that the Israelites did, the golden calf. 
Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That references the sin of Baal of Peor in Numbers 25, where they were uh, engaging in sexual immorality and worshiping Baal. And God judged them for that. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, or grumbled as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So multiple times in that wilderness journey that they had, they grumbled and complained. And their worst complaint, at least in my eyes, maybe in God's eyes, was they complained against about manna sometimes. They said, we don't, we don't have anything to eat. And by the way, we don't like this worthless food. Um, looking at manna, God's miraculous provision, and rejecting it, complaining about it. Um, what did God do? He judged many of them for that and punished them because that was His miraculous provision. All right. So the idolatry and the um, the grumbling, the discontentment that they had, these are things that Paul is saying we need to recognize. These examples have lessons in our own life. And in this case, he's applying them very directly to the Corinthians. Don't, don't actually fall into idolatry. <coughs> Live separate holy lives. One of the things about the idols in the Old Testament, and then even in a first century city like Corinth, is everyone knew it was an idol. Right? Because it had a name, it was a figure, it had a temple, and you would go and worship it sacrifice to it. For us, we need to recognize idols, and if we've been around long enough, we've heard this before, but I want to push us to think about this even a little bit more. What is Israel called to be a holy people? Their first commandment, have no other gods before me, right? That is their highest and most important command and priority. God is first. No other gods before him. And it was very, in one sense, I'm saying, it's very simple for us to look back at them and say, oh, well, if they're worshiping Baal, clearly they put another god before him. Right? That's obvious. For us, it may be less obvious, right? What might we worship? And I want us to give us a, just a few things to think about in terms of, you know, what might we be worshiping other than God? You know, what are our idols? Clearly, the idols that we might have today could be sinful. But I don't want to talk about those ones. I want to talk about the idols that can actually be good things in and of themselves. What makes them an idol, though, is that they become more important than God. What makes something an idol is that it takes our eyes off of God and our eyes are focused on it, right? And so for us as Christians, we may have blind spots to our idols, right? And we need to recognize that. One way of thinking about it, why did they worship Baal? Well, you can have a lot of reasons, but maybe the easiest reason is everyone else was doing it. Right? They, they move into the land of Canaan where they have all these surrounding cultures with their gods. All the other cultures had so much fun. Right, They get to worship many gods and they got to, as we just read, engage in sexual immorality while they're worshiping their gods. 
we Israelites, we have the boring way. We only worship one God, and we have to do it in the tabernacle, in the temple. Everyone else is doing these other things that look so attractive, right? So as we look at our own lives, what are even the good things that can draw our focus off of God? I'll give you a couple of examples that I think about in these terms. I mean, you know, not bad things. These are good things that can draw our attention away from God and keeping Him as our highest priority. So, how about this? How about our concern with things like health, safety, and comfort? Health, safety, comfort. Those are good things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with being healthy and comfortable and safe, right? Unless our desire for those things and our concern about those things becomes so great that it's more important than living our lives for God. That it becomes more important than living out the gospel. And there are real ways that we think about these. I'm not going to try to talk about very specifics today. Instead, I want to sketch this in a way that you can think about for yourself. Where can those concerns, right? I wouldn't go into that neighborhood because it's a little dangerous. But maybe people in that neighborhood need to hear the gospel here on Christians, right? It's that kind of thing, right? So thinking about concerns that become can become too important. All right, here's another one. This may be. I'll be the most obvious one. How about um, in our Christian world, um, marriage as an idol? Well, marriage is a good thing. I agree, marriage is a great thing. But what can it become? It can become, for a single person, an idol. If only I had spouse, if only I got married, then I would find contentment and happiness and fulfillment in my life. If I'm married and I say, I'm finding my happiness and contentment and fulfillment in my spouse and in my marriage relationship. Where should we as Christians be finding happiness, contentment, fulfillment in life? Ultimately in God. It's not that we can't find those things in a lesser way than a spouse. It's when we set that up as the goal for our life, find the right spouse. You can do the same thing. As I work with college students, as my wife working at a Christian high school, dealing with high school kids and college kids, you know, what do you want with your life? And sometimes it's dealing with their parents. What do you want for your kid? Well, I want my child to have a good job so they can make good money and do well and have success in life. Okay, is there wrong, anything wrong with getting a good job and being able to support yourself in life? But for Christian parents and Christian people, is that our ultimate goal? That health, safety, security, comfort, those things can very easily become too important. And notice, you guys said this before, what are the other people, what are they pursuing? The people who don't know Christ, what do they put as their highest priority? We as Christians can take our eyes off of Christ and the influence and say, oh, yeah, those things are really the most important thing. For each of us, we need to recognize that we're constantly being tempted in that way. We are constantly being given other idols, a 
other gods, right? Something that someone is telling us this should be more important than your worship of Jesus, your worship of God. This idea of being set apart and keeping God as our highest priority, our, our calling as a holy people, I think then leads straight into the third aspect that I wanted to bring out in our common mission. What is the mission of Israel? And, and, and this is something I do want to take the moment to, to, to say a few things about. Notice at the end of 1 Corinthians 10. Right? So I'll, I'll hear it from Paul first as far as his mission and how everything that we've been talking about and the, the, the decisions that he has to make in the first century are, are going to have this outcome. Look at the end of 1 Corinthians 10. In verse 31, he summarizes what he's been teaching them for three chapters. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So based on his relationship, on our relationship with God, I'm going to suggest even in the Old Testament Israelite relationship with God, God has called his people to himself to be holy, not just for their own good, but that others might see Jesus through us, that others might see God and know him through Old Testament Israel. Our common mission common goal between God's people in the Old Testament and those today. Let me, um, let me turn to a couple Old Testament passages in developing this point just briefly for us to see. Turn back to um, Genesis 12. So this goes way, way back to the beginning when God calls Abram out from among the nations. So we've just had the Tower of Babel where the nations are divided and spread out. And one thing to notice is God doesn't just scatter the nations and leave them to their own devices and kind of go back to heaven and ignore them. The nations are scattered, but God calls one man, Abram, out from among the nations. And he enters into this special covenant with Abram because of God's grace. He hasn't abandoned the human race. And read what with me in, in Genesis 12 what God says about Abram from the very start. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that from the start of calling this one man, Abram, out, who will become the nation of Israel, God's concern for this people is that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And that's something that we often, I think, overlook in the Old Testament. What is God doing with Israel? Is he just having a special relationship with Israel because he likes them better? He doesn't tell us why he chose them. That was his sovereign choice. 
But in doing so, he is now working through this man, Abram, and his descendants, the nation of Israel. And God's intention is to be a blessing, for them to be a blessing to the world. To make a long story, the Old Testament is short. Why did they fail to be a blessing so often? Well, it's more complicated than them just being a blessing. They had to be in relationship with God. They had to be blessed by God through that relationship. And too often, they were unfaithful to God. And they were turning the other way. So they weren't receiving any blessing. And therefore, they weren't being a blessing. Right? They were called out to be special, a kingdom of nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, but too often they weren't functioning as that holy nation so that other nations weren't being blessed through them. I hope you can see a strong analogy between them and us at this point. We, the Christian church, called out to be a holy people, to be set apart for God, with God's intention that we would be a blessing. Jesus uses the terminology of being salt and light in the world, right? That we would stand out, that others would see us as lights in this world. They would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. That's God's intention for us. Why do we fail? Well, too often we're making the same mistakes as Old Testament Israel. This is why I'm coming back to this. This is why um, Paul does it. What can we learn from? We have this, this high calling to be a blessing. And let's see, one last passage I just want to look at. Turn with me to, to Jeremiah um, 29 to see this place where they were to be a blessing. Because I do think there's, in this case, a strong analogy to us. So turn with me to Jeremiah 29 for our last passage we will look at. What can we learn from their examples and what they are called to do? Jeremiah, in chapter 29, is in the final days before the fall of Jerusalem, before the fall of the temple to the Babylonians. But at that point, there are already some people who have been taken into exile. So Jeremiah is writing to the exiles in Babylon who have been um, violently ripped from their homes and carried away into exile. Notice what God tells Jeremiah to write to these people who are in exile. So I'm going to begin reading it in Jeremiah 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The reason that they should live out life normally is that they're going to be there for 70 years. And that's what Jeremiah is about to announce to them. So live out your lives in exile. But I want to get to this point. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Who are they to be praying for? The Babylonians who took them from their own homes and carried them away into exile. Pray for the Babylonians. 
As Christians, do we recognize that we are in exile? And we've been in exile for 2,000 years. Is our citizenship here? The Bible tells us our citizenship is in heaven. We are left here as ambassadors to this world. But we have so often become used to this being our home. Do we recognize that Christ, our Lord, is in heaven? That's where our citizenship is. We are not with him. Just as in the Old Testament, they were waiting for Messiah to come the first time. We are waiting to be reunited with him. We are waiting for him to return and come the second time. We are in exile. If we recognize that viewpoint, if we recognize that biblical perspective, maybe that helps us see what is most important. We're living in exile. This is not our home. We are here to serve our Lord is in heaven as his representatives, as his body, as his ambassadors. What a high calling we have. But too often we forget about this high calling as Christians, to be this holy people set apart, shining as lights in a dark world, and we're just going along with the rest of the world in the way that it lives, making its priorities our priorities. These are lessons, I'm suggesting, that Paul points us to, that I'm pointing us to, that we can learn from Old Testament Israel. We can learn from their successes. They're rare, but occasionally they have good influence on the nations. More often we can, we can learn from their failures and we can see how they struggle to be the people that God called them to be. That's who we are. But if we don't even recognize our high calling, we don't know that we're not fulfilling. So see our high calling in Christ to be these set-apart people who are living with Him as our highest priority, putting aside all the other potential little gods and idols of this world and saying, this is our highest priority, to serve Him and live our lives for Him. Ultimately, not just for ourselves, but so that others may see Him 